Friends, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. You'll remember last week we read the first half of this chapter, and that, of course, is the story of Samuel coming to David's home in Bethlehem, and of all Jesse's sons, God seeing to the heart and anointing David as the to-be king of Israel. There's a long road between David as he's anointed and David as he's king of Israel. And we're going to begin to read part of that story as we look at the second half of this chapter. I want to reach back and read verse 13, begin there, so that we can see the contrast that the Lord builds in his word. Hear now God's word from 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Let's pray together. Father, we're going to talk about your spirit and your spirit's presence in us, which he is here now in our midst, and he is working the very things we hope for that you've promised to work in us. And so, Lord, as we study this passage, I pray you would do so more and more, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, several decades after Jesus was crucified, died, rose again from the dead, and Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit comes upon the entire church and once and for all begins to fill people as they are born again, the Apostle John, he wrote a letter and he wrote it to a lot of small church plants that were in what we would consider modern day Turkey today. And he wrote to these churches based on the Holy Spirit, do not believe every spirit that's in you. But test the spirits and discern if the Spirit of God is really among you. That was his warning. That was his word of advice to the churches that he ministered to. Well, in today's passage, we read about the Holy Spirit. We read about the Spirit's presence in David. We read about his absence in Saul. We even get this idea of a evil, a harmful spirit that descends upon Saul. And so that word is relevant to us today. As we read, as we understand, we're going to make two points very simply. How do we understand the Spirit's absence? And how do we understand the Spirit's presence? And how is that relevant to us today as we think about, as we heed John's warnings, and test the Holy Spirit and see if he is really among us? Let's begin talking about the Spirit's absence. Because I'm sure you read verse 14 and found it a bit disturbing as I did. Look at this verse. 
Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now that's disturbing in both parts. First of all, that the Holy Spirit can actually depart from a person. And secondly, that God in its stead would send an evil spirit to torment somebody. What do we make of this spiritual dynamic that's happening in the life of Saul? We're going to look at each section of this verse in turn. But first of all, that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. What what does that mean? Now, in the New Testament, Paul writes about the Holy Spirit, and he says one of the chief ministries of the Holy Spirit, what I think is one of the most beautiful and meaningful ministries of the Holy Spirit, is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, which says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Did you hear that? When the Spirit comes upon us, when we're born again, he fills us and he speaks to our hearts and assures us of our salvation. When we feel and we hear from and we know God's Spirit within us, we know that we have a seal of our salvation. This is a down payment of our inheritance because we have the Spirit and it assures our hearts who are riddled with doubt, we are indeed saved and we will persevere to the end. We think that, we know that, we hear that New Testament theology, and then all of a sudden we read a verse like we just did in 1614, which seems to say the exact opposite, that the Holy Spirit is now packing up and is leaving a person, and I think that strikes a chord with one of the deepest fears in all of our hearts. I don't think any of us would say this quite like this, but I think we all share a common fear that God's love is just like our love. That when we think about God's love for us, we, we worry that it is a conditional love, much like the love that we give another person. It's, it's flaky, it's fleeting, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. If God, on a whim or in this season of weakness, can take his Holy Spirit from us and worse, replace it with a, a spirit of torment, a harmful spirit, who can stand before the Lord? If he takes and gives his spirit at will, if we're saved today and not saved tomorrow, who can possibly stand before God? We have this fear within us, and this verse seems to just kind of throw gasoline on that fear within our hearts. Well, very simply, I want us to understand that the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that he is in the New. He's a member of the Trinity. He is God himself. He is God's spirit who shares the same attributes, old and new, but he operates very differently between the Testaments. In the New Testament, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, he fills us as believers in a new way that he had in the same way in the Old Testament. When we're born again, God's spirit dwells in us and he is indeed the spirit that we hope for. He is our assurance of salvation. He is the seal of our inheritance. We can be sure of our salvation because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's not the way he operates in the Old Testament. You find scenes in the Old Testament where God's spirit appears and then it departs, where he's here and then he's gone and he operates very differently. We're going to read a couple chapters from now, this wily scene in 1 Samuel 19, where Saul is chasing David, and he sends some men to go get David, and when they go after him, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, comes upon these men, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to prophesy. And Saul sees that, and that's not what he wants, and so he sends more men, and the Spirit comes on those men, and they also prophesy. And Saul is very frustrated, and so he goes himself to catch David, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and Saul also prophesies. 
Now in 1 Samuel 19, we're not meant to think that these men are being born again. Again, that God's spirit is filling them again after he has already filled and then left Saul. We understand that the Holy Spirit comes and goes as he will and that he operates very differently in the Old Testament than he does in the New. And so our our worst fears that might come out of this passage are really unfounded. God is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do when he gives us the Holy Spirit as a sign of our salvation that is true and we can bank on that with our eternal lives. He will not, to to the person who frets or fears God's love, leave us or forsake us. He won't and he cannot do that. But there's another word within this very same passage. It's, it's a word of warning to the bold sinner. It's a word to the person among us who would call themselves a Christian, who would be in our attendance, who would join and participate in some of these things, but they are a person who thoroughly and consistently rejects God and his word. Now, I'm not talking about the person who calls himself a Christian who sins, because that would describe every single Christian in this room. All of us are Christians who sin, we're now speaking about the person who would call themselves a believer who does not repent. They choose their sin and they will not repent of it and they won't turn from it to the left or to the right. That person marches headlong into their sin and they thoroughly and consistently reject God's word. There's a warning here for that person when you watch the life of Saul. Because if you think about it, Saul really what for all intents and purposes looks and acts and talks and smells and operates like a believer. He really seems like a true believer to us. I mean, think about all this evidence in his life. Saul was friends with a prophet. He had prayers answered. He prophesied. He was used by God to win victories. He forgives. He sacrifices. He builds an altar. He gives credit to God. I mean, religiosity, it abounds in Saul's life. You look at Saul from afar and it appears that he truly is a believer. And yet, as we read in verse 7, God's not deceived by these things. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord, when his vision cuts through all this religious busyness, he finds a man who in his heart thoroughly and consistently rejects God's word. Now that warning falls on the church because the church as a whole is full of souls. The church as a whole is, is full of those who want to receive Jesus as a savior, but reject him as their Lord. A people who want the salvation and the benefits and the blessings of Jesus, but they reject him as a king in waiting who rules over the cosmos. Those of us who in our midst would call themselves a Christian, We've prayed a prayer, we've walked an aisle, we have a leather-bound Bible with our names engraved on it. Anybody who looked outwardly at us would think and discern that we're actually a believer, but truly inside of our hearts, we thoroughly and we consistently reject God and his word. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And the Saul-like pew sitter says, no. No, I won't. There's something I love more. There's something I find more joy in. There's something that matters more to me than your lordship, Jesus, and I will not follow you where you will go. If that's you, 
If that's the wrestling in your heart, if you've laid claim to something in your life that is not God and you will not turn from the left or the right of that thing, 1 Samuel 16 says to you, watch out. Watch out. It's not that the Holy Spirit will leave you, but in your rebellion, you will find that you never, ever had the Holy Spirit. But God's judgment rests on you. There's a warning here that all of us need to read and heed in God's word. There's a second aspect of what's happening here in the Spirit's absence. First of all, the Spirit departs from Saul, but the second part of this is an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, I'd love to be a fly on the wall and hear how a conversation goes between one of Saul's servants and Saul, because I find it difficult to bring up to somebody that they have spinach in their teeth. I can't imagine saying to someone, bro, I think you've got a evil spirit from God sent to torment you because you're tormenting me, and that's the only way that I could understand that. Somehow, these men venture out and they say this to Saul. They say, we understand that you have this within you. Now, my ESV translation originally had an evil spirit sent from God, but they've since changed that translation, and they have a footnote in my Bible that says that could also be translated just as easily, a harmful spirit sent from God. And that's really the sense in which we understand this. This is a spirit that is sent from God that is harmful. It is meant to torment Saul. It is meant to bring injury or disaster to him. God is not evil. He's not the author of evil. Many passages in scripture make that crystal clear. And so we don't understand this as an evil part of God sent to do his bidding. This is a spirit that we don't get a lot of explanation about who is sent to bring torment. Saul has rejected God and his word. Now God rejects Saul and in his spirit's absence, he sends a spirit upon him to torment him and to do him ill. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, but we understand that the adverse is also true. Where the spirit of the Lord is absence, there is fear and anxiety and sin and judgment. The absence of God's spirit means the resting of God's judgment. It's an awful thing to think about. That's the spirit's absence in our passage, which we see so readily in the person of Saul. I want us to turn and talk very briefly about the spirit's presence. You can't really find a greater uh, contrast between David and Saul than in verses 13 and 14. And that's why we mush these two stories together because they come right after each other. You read in 13 and 14, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then a little bit later, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We're going to watch the fall of one king and the rise of another, but before we get too far into analyzing the character traits and the giftings or the lack thereof of these two men, we understand this story at the outset as God's work. It is God's spirit who departs from the one and fills the other. It is God who is at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the one who animates the story of 1 Samuel, and he is the one who is due all praise and all glory. Now, when we talk about the spirit's presence, who comes upon David, rushes upon David, I just want to make one point from this passage. I just want us to take one thing from this passage about the Spirit's presence and chew on that because that's about all the capacity we have to learn and apply to do something. But if I was going to give six points about the Holy Spirit's presence in us and what he's doing in this chapter, I'll go ahead and give you the five and then we'll just focus on number six. So let's fly through these first ones. The Spirit of God in this passage is a gift. 
This is a scene of God's sovereign election. It's Isaac over Ishmael, it's Jacob over Esau, and now it's David over Jonathan. You're not going to prove to me from 1 Samuel that David is a more worthy recipient of the Spirit of God than Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul's son, Jonathan, is the rightful heir of the throne, and he has proved himself a faithful man. You're not going to prove that he's more deserving of God's Spirit than David is. All of us stand in awe to watch the sovereign election of God who reaches down out of the hundred thousand Israelites, reaches down out of Jesse's entire household and all of his sons, and he draws out David and he fills him with his Holy Spirit. That is a gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. The Spirit is a gift. Number two, the Spirit is a down payment. God has David anointed by Samuel, and that would be good enough. That says he's going to be king. But he also gives him his spirit as proof, as a down payment that David is really going to receive kingship. And he does the same with us. This is God's proof within us that he abides with us and us with him, and that he will lead us to salvation. The spirit is a down payment. Number three, the spirit is forever. That's a funny point to make when we just watch the Spirit depart from Saul. But you'll notice in verse 13 that something different is happening with David. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of God in David and in us is forever. Number four, the spirit brings courage. Verse 18, when the servant in Saul's court begins to to speak all the accolades and the attributes about David, kind of sounds like a Match.com profile. I mean, David is everything you could ever want. He's great at music. He's good at speech. He's got a good presence. You're just kind of waiting to hear that he speaks Spanish fluently, and he's like the total package that anybody would want. But you also have this line that says he's a man of valor. Now, between these two stories, David being anointed and David coming to play the liar in Saul's court, it's probably two or three years happened between these verses 13 and 14. And so I don't know if this servant sees the spirit of God in David and sees the valor that he brings, but either way, a man of valor becomes a banner over the life of David for the rest of his kingship. When the Spirit of God fills him, he fills him with courage, and he proves true what Paul promises us in 2 Timothy 1.7, that God's Spirit is not a spirit of fear and timidity, but it is a spirit of power, and it proves so in David. Number five, the Spirit is life-giving. It's no coincidence that when David is filled with the Holy Spirit, he moves from being a shepherd of sheep to a shepherd of a king. He becomes a minister, a musician, and an exorcist all rolled into one. When the Spirit fills him, he has this life-giving presence in Saul's court. And think about his early relationship with Saul. The only way Saul knows him, the only time Saul the king spends with David is in his darkest hour. It's when the spirit of torment, of, of paranoia, of madness comes upon him, and David, who's filled with the Spirit, becomes this life-giving presence. He knows Saul in his darkest, weakest moments, and Saul loves him for it. David is a life-giving presence because the Spirit of God is in him, and the same is true for whom the Spirit of God dwells in today. That's five points. We're not going to talk about any of those things. We're going to talk about point number six, which is our real point, and what we understand about the Spirit's presence in us and what he's doing, and that is this. The Spirit moves us to action particularly in the face of adversity. The Spirit moves us to action, often in the face of adversity. 
We've been talking about the Spirit as a sign, as a seal, as a presence, as an affirmation, as an inheritance. But he's not just like this warm, mushy feeling down in our hearts. You know, that might be acid reflux. It might be the Holy Spirit. It might not be. The Spirit, when he gets a hold of us, he moves us into action. And because the action that the Spirit moves in, in us in is against the grain of this entire culture that rejects Jesus as its king, the places that the Spirit moves us will bring adversity. The things that God wants to do in us by his Holy Spirit, the ways he wants to change us and our old self, it will bring adversity. When the Spirit appears, it looks like he gives David more grief than the problems that he answers. He compounds David's problems when he fills him because he leads David into adversity. Think about this. When David is filled with the Holy Spirit, the next two people he is going to meet in 1 Samuel want to kill him. He's going to meet Saul, and then he's going to meet Goliath, and these two people want his head on a platter. The Spirit is leading David into this adversity. But these two guys, a murdering king and a a blaspheming giant, these are the least of David's worries. Because if we understand the timeline of what's happening here, We said that verse 13 probably happens when David is like 10 to 13 years old. He's very young. He's a young shepherd. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons, and he's anointed as king, but he won't actually become king for another 10 or 20 years after this point. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine this promise of being king, this anointing, and then waiting 10 or 20 years to see that thing fulfilled? Now, if God would have only waited 20 years, if he wouldn't have anointed David now, if he wouldn't have filled him with his spirit now, if he would have waited until Saul had died and then anointed him and then filled him with the spirit and then David would have stepped into the throne, he would have saved David a world of adversity. He would have saved him all the woes of the second half of this book, but God doesn't. He fills him with his Holy Spirit and he uses him for his kingdom. And that using of David brings him all kinds of grief. David's going to spend the next 10 or 20 years on the run. He's going to fear for his life. He is going to doubt God's goodness. And that's where we get half of David's Psalms wondering if God indeed is good. If you were a casual outside observer, You knew something about David, you knew something about Saul, and you found David holed up in Philistine territory, fearing for his life and doubting the presence of God. You might have asked the question, who has which spirit? Who's got the evil spirit and who's got the Holy Spirit? Because whichever one David has is the one I don't want. Because David has had nothing but problems. He has been led into running for his life because of the presence of the spirit. Whatever he has is the one I don't want. The Spirit moves us into action, and that comes at great cost to the person we are now. When he wants to bear in us the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that's only going to come to us at the expense of the person we've already become. The Spirit leads us to action, and he will bring adversity in our lives. Now, I've told many of you guys my conversion story. I was converted when I was 18 years old. 
And uh, I learned early on as a brand new believer that if you're a Christian with a past, if you threw a few punches, you smoked a little weed, you drank a few mad dogs, then your testimony, it kind of gets launched into celebrity status. You'll find yourself as the keynote speaker at youth group rallies of 10 and 20 people. I mean, you will hold court with your testimony over this group of people, Christian school chapels. Nobody wants to hear about a kid who was four that was converted and has radically and faithfully served Jesus for the rest of their life. We don't have time for that. We want a person with a past. I mean, that'll preach. And so I understood, even as a brand new believer, I understood the rules of giving a testimony. If you're given 10 minutes to give a testimony, you dedicate nine and a half minutes to pre-Christ shenanigans. We want to know how bad was it? What's the worst thing you did? What's it like to throw a punch? And then you wrap up with 30 seconds of Jesus saved me, and then he answered all my problems. I mean, even today, the way we tell a good story is to say, before I was a Christian, I... And you sit on the edge of your seat because you know that's going to be good. Nobody begins an adventure story with, after I was born again, I, you know, because what do you do after you're born again? You sit around a campfire and you sing love songs to Jesus or whatever. Now that we've walked, all of us, with Jesus for some time, we understand just the foolishness of that. We understand that when God's spirit fills us, Jesus doesn't answer all of our problems. In fact, he gives us new ones that we never dealt with before. Faith, love, and hope. Those are three things I never thought about, never dealt with, never had to encounter. And when the Holy Spirit fills me, he brings a world of adversity that is counter to everything that I had ever lived or done or believed in. He moves me to a kind of action that brings a world of adversity upon myself. Look at the person David. David was anointed king probably as a 10-year-old shepherd in the backwoods of Bethlehem. You can hardly pick a further place from sitting on a throne in Israel, not geographically, but circumstantially, because there is a world of grief that stands between David as the shepherd boy and David as the king of Israel, and the spirit fills David and walks him through all of that adversity to arrive at what the Lord has called him to. Exact same true as us, is true of us. When we first come to faith in Christ, when God's spirit fills us, we are full of lives that are riddled with addictions and fears, lives that are bent bent inward on ourselves, and we look nothing like the descriptions that God makes of us in the New Testament. Saints, those who will receive a crown, those who will inherit the kingdom of God, those who will reign with Jesus, those who will wear a spotless robe. It's a world away from us. And there is a world of adversity that stands between us and the promise that God gives us in his word. And yet, the Spirit will fill us and he will move us to action. And the adversity that he brings will be God's good for us to change us. And may, as we face that adversity, pray the same promises that God gives us back to him when we pick up a psalm like Psalm 51, which were penned by David himself. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I pray that because I know, God, that you can do that. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear that in David? I pray that, God, because I know that you won't do that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold in me a willing spirit. I pray that, God, because you will do that in me. Let's pray together. 
This is what we want, Lord. We want your spirit to fill us and to move us. And we are willing by faith to take the adversity that you bring because you are working in us both to will and to work for our salvation. Would you do that in our lives? Would you do that more and more? We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.